Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Rural poverty in America is not a new problem, but the extent of the issue has seldom been brought to public attention because it's out of sight and hidden. What happens when these communities are infiltrated by wealthy newcomers exacerbating economic inequity? How does this rural gentrification contribute to the rise of populist politics and social polarization? Let's discuss this with Dr. Jennifer Sherman. Well, warm greetings, everybody. We are doing another podcast today with someone that Greg and I are really uh, looking forward to chatting with. It's uh, Dr. Jennifer Sherman, and you are an associate professor at uh, Wazoo in the Department of Sociology. And, uh, and I'm actually a full professor now. Uh, oh, congratulations. <laughs> well, good. That's right. Con- congratulations. And and when I, I think to give you a little bit of background, I hear see here that you teach uh, poverty, inequity, uh, social problems of the family, poverty in the family, and qualitative methods, which is how you've done with some some of your books. And and we're here to uh, talk with 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 you about your your very good book, Dividing Paradise, one of a couple of books, but this is the one that's the most recent. And Jennifer, let me tell you how I uh, discovered you. Um, I, I have four sisters, and they're always sending me ideas for podcasts. And one of them sent me this article that was in uh, Humanities, um, Humanities in Washington. It's a, it's, and it talked about wealthy Seattleites are transforming rural Washington. And uh, my sister sent it to me from, uh, she lives in Twisp uh, out in the Methow Valley. And she said, oh my God, this just sounds like, you know, this just sounds like what's going on here, which, you know, may or may not be the Paradise Valley. But so that is, um, that's why I'm chatting with you and um, welcome to our show. Tell me about Paradise Valley. Where is Paradise Valley? Um, well, so Paradise Valley is a pseudonym. Um, I, because the work I do is, is very intimate um, and people share a lot of really private details with me, um, I try to keep things confidential. Um, mm-hmm. Some sites are a little harder to keep secret than others, but Paradise Valley, uh, it's, a, it's not the real name, but it, it is a, a small community in the Cascade Mountains in Washington state. Um, it's, uh, it's got sort of several little towns, but it, it, overall the, the area that encompasses that valley um, has about 5,000 residents. Mm-hmm. Um, only about half of the homes right now are actually occupied year round. So about yeah, mm-hmm. half or more of the housing is owned by people who don't live there all year. Um, it's a place with a, a history and things like logging and ranching and mining. Um, but in the late 20th century, like a lot of the rural West, it sort of transitioned out of those industries as they started to collapse out here. Um, and Paradise Valley was lucky enough to be able to replace those industries with a focus on, on tourism, really um, amenity tourism, bringing people in to enjoy the, the really gorgeous natural amenities of this place. But um, as I explore in the book, in the process, it sort of changed the nature of the community as you start to bring more and more people in. Um, and sort of as an outcome of that tourism industry, you also see a lot of in-migration, both by retirees and then later by um, telecommuters often, or people just relocating from cities who say, you know, I'm done with city life. I want to want to live a slower, more wholesome lifestyle. Uh, often, you know, I want to raise my kids in a place like this. And that right. Kind of and and your your first book was a similar similar thing where you literally come into these communities. It was northern northern uh, California, and the impact of the the timber communities that are transformed through um, spotted owl legislation or environmental legislation or, or various other various other things. And you you embed yourself in these communities and just live there for a while, and then you do the qualitative uh, uh, research technique of interviewing people and trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and then your second book you edited. It's again rural poverty in the United States. That's 2017. So 
you know, Greg and I are interested in this because we, I, I'm, I'm kind of an Air Force brat, but I grew up all over the, the, the place, but I spent high school, college, and part of, and all through college in rural central Illinois, Champaign-Urbana area, and uh, Danville area, and Greg grew up in Danville, and we have seen this the effect of rural poverty in this central Illinois, where the once was thriving, have lost industry, have lost jobs, the small squares in downtown are all boarded up. And so it's kind of personal to us to, to see this kind of flyover country phenomenon of- Let me, let me just add, Pat, it's, it's what struck me about your book, Jennifer, was that it, it did generalize, as Pat said, it generalized to mine and his experience in the, in the Midwest, where there is no, uh, no new industry coming in. That's the, so it's even worse there. But I live in Pittsburgh, and that's urban area, and there's gentrification here as well, and displacement, and the same kinds of changes in the deindustrialization as it is in Cleveland and other places. And it, 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 I thought the power of your book is to show how I just generalize it in this country. And it has different wrinkles everywhere, but it, it's a process going on everywhere. And I had no, I had no idea that, you know, in these small towns in the, in the far west, this was what, what's happening. So I, I really appreciated that. And it, it makes me stop and think. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're right. It is kind of happening everywhere. And, and I think that's because this gentrification, whether it's urban or rural, is really an, an outcome of these other much larger structural factors that have been going on in the US, right? The loss of exactly those kinds of jobs, those um, you know, jobs for people who didn't have necessarily a higher education and a college degree and, and didn't need it. it, it you know, they had other types of skills and knowledge. Um, and those were jobs that, that paid a living wage, that often were unionized, that really took care of a family. And as we've lost those types of jobs and replaced them throughout the nation with more sort of service sector, retail, that kind of stuff um, for that same you know, level of worker, what we've seen is really falling real wages, you know, you know, adjusted wages in those sectors. So people with less than a college degree are so far behind those with the college degree that we have this massive amount of inequality now. And, and that's behind gentrification, whether it happens in an urban area or a rural one. Um, but as you said, I was also a little bit surprised to see this level of gentrification happening in rural areas because um, mostly my prior experience had been in places that sound a little bit more like your Midwestern communities, right? So my, my first book focused on this, you know, kind of former logging community where there was no tourism to replace the jobs because it was just so isolated and so hard to get to and didn't quite have the, the it just wasn't situated to build on its natural amenities in that same way, although it is very beautiful there as well. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it's a really different story for places like that. Um, and people had been telling me, you know, within rural sociology for years, we've been hearing, oh, well, tourism is, is kind of this panacea. It brings people back in. It brings economic activity. It improves the, um, your, you know, your local economy. Um, so it was a little bit of a shock to go in and, and, and really immerse myself in a place like that and discover, well, <laughs> it looks good on paper. Right, <laughs> but right. It, it doesn't necessarily feel good. <laughs> You distinguish between newcomers and old comers. I think it's a really handy kind of a distinction in the book. And, and uh, my problem is I'm much older and, and I don't know who these newcomers are. I mean, it's seem in Pittsburgh, uh, Google is here big time and they're part of the destruction of what was a predominantly black community and uh, loss of, of, of the black community, a uh, depopulation of it here and their replacement by this group of younger people. They have job descriptions that I, I don't understand. I'm too old to understand. And, and when I read your book too, you know, I, because you have lots of your notes and interviews, who are these people? Who are these? I know who the old timers are, but who are the newcomers? And where do they get the money? Yeah. I mean, how do you have the money to go and have, just say, I'm going to buy a home in this area, buy 18 acres. Where does that come from and how prevalent is it? I mean, what percentage of our population now is, part of that kind of professional managerial class. Could you talk about that? I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I, I looked at it really from that macro scale. I mean, so, you know, in my community, the newcomers were made up of a few different groups of people because it, they spanned age groups, right? A large proportion of them were retirees. 
mm-hmm. who very frequently were retiring from often not super high paid jobs in cities. A lot of the retirees that I got to know were, I mean, you know, some of them were engineers and things like that, but a number of them were retired teachers and and people who'd had relatively modest middle-class lifestyles, but they were in places like Seattle. And because of the just massive inequality in land values, at least at the time, between urban areas and rural, you could cash out that home near Seattle and be able to afford thousands of acres in a place like Paradise Valley. So that was one group of newcomers were sort of, you know, relatively privileged, but often just kind of regularly middle-class retired, retired folks. Um, but another whole group is more the, you know, the, the sort of younger families. And I was a little bit surprised to find them as well. I hadn't read a lot about this kind of urban to rural migration, um, but it was sort of a hodgepodge of middle-class people, some of whom, you know, really just felt like I want to be closer to nature. Um, and they often had some amount of family wealth. Um, sometimes they had parents that were helping. Sometimes there were people who'd worked in, you know, corporate industries um, for a while and made quite a bit of money. And, and again, were able to sort of cash out their urban assets and, and they just stretched a lot further in these rural areas. Um, and then more and more really since the pandemic in the same community, what you're seeing are the, what we're calling kind of Zoom town migrants, um, people who during the pandemic discovered that they were able to work remotely some proportion of the time. So they have, again, you know, pretty well-paid jobs, at least compared to the salary scale in a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and they buy these second homes and they're able to kind of go back and forth and they, you know, maybe return to the office for a couple of weeks at a time and then come back and live in their country home for a few weeks at a time. Um, and the pandemic's just given people the flexibility to do that. Whereas those prior generations and a lot of the people that I met in Paradise Valley were, were not doing a ton of telecommuting really at that point. Um, some were doing something like that. But I, I also interviewed, as you probably learned, a ton of people who were, you know, college educated carpenters and stuff like that, where they really had just kind of cashed out their assets um, and taken jobs that didn't utilize their education, but that they they liked the flexibility, they liked the time off, they, you know, they felt like it was creative endeavors because they were getting the sort of, you know, they they were getting like the finished carpentry jobs, the more exciting ones um, within that industry. And a lot of folks were doing stuff like that where they just kind of made it work and um, just, you know, wanted to live what they thought of as a simpler lifestyle. That said, a lot of them didn't last. A lot of them have already left since I was there. Um, there's kind of a, you know, a constant churning of that population as people discover, oh, I'm missing out on a lot of the amenities of the urban area, whether that's, you know, job opportunities, which for a lot of people, it was a struggle that they eventually got sick of. Um, Sometimes it was about medical opportunities. So people that had any kind of medical concerns would often leave eventually be, you know, because it's just a medically underserved area and it's it's hard to get specialized treatment in these kinds of rural communities. Um, And I think there were also a number of out, you know, people who had come in, but then left again because of things like dating pools where, you know, they were sick of being single. (laughs) And felt like the dating pool was just too limited in such a small community. But you, well, you, well, uh, there's, you, 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 uh, do this very well. This the cultural distinctions between the old timers and this new crowd, and in spite of that broad demographics you gave, that broad group they're from this and this and this, older, younger, etc. There's a cultural commonality that you you show there. What's the basis? Where does that come from? How, how they all think alike? <laughs> I know, you know, being a, a carpenter with a college education or being a, a 70 year old retiree, they have the same, they have a mentality that's radically different. Just as in the Midwest, the mentality of the people that Pat and I knew or know in the Midwest or grew up with is different than in the cities and people we frankly hang out with. It's what, what accounts for that cultural commonality? Well, I mean, a little bit is the same split we're seeing across the nation, right? I mean, I think. We all are aware of this, that if you if you look at sort of, you know, political divides or cultural divides throughout the nation, um, the urban areas and particularly the coastal urban areas look really different from a lot of rural areas and Midwestern southern areas. And this was just reproducing that Washington state is this odd microcosm of that exact divide, right, where the the Cascade Mountains just kind of split the state in half. And on the, the west side of the mountains, you have a much more urban population, but it's better educated. It's 
politically super liberal um, and they have very specific interests over there, you know, a lot of interest in um, well, the arts, but often these outdoor sports and things like that. And they've really contrasted with this more rural working class population that you see east of the Cascade Mountains that, you know, I mean, there's constantly secessionist movements in the West that look <laughs> very similar where you've got people east of whatever mountain range is dividing, you know, whether it's Washington or Oregon or California. Um, but, you know, these are folks that consider themselves to be sort of more working class, more, I mean, they tended to be more politically conservative. Um, and their, their exposures were just different because, you know, they didn't have exposure to these kind of urban pursuits. They weren't used to going to art galleries or theaters, and, and they often don't see the, their relationships to the land in the same way, um, you know, whereas in a lot of rural communities, land has long been seen as something that you, you use in very specific ways. You use it for for creating your own subsistence, whether that's through agriculture or hunting or the, you know, it's, it's a very different relationship to the land than um, these urban folks who see land as really a recreational thing, you know, or something that you kind of like <laughs> gate off and, and keep pristine for your own use. So we had really different orientations towards land use in the first place that very much clashed with each other. And as more and more and more of these folks from the, the cities are moving in, it's, it changes the nature of land use in these communities in ways that they're all sort of, you know, whether it's Paradise Valley or someplace else out here, we're just sort of struggling to make sense of and, and figure out how to navigate. Yeah, people don't realize how liberal we are and what the divide, I, you know, I went to a concert last night in Fremont up in Seattle, and I don't know if you know there, there Greg, there's a 14 foot statue of linen in Fremont, I, I went. Is that Lennon? Yeah, yes, that <laughs> not is not John Lennon. Not John Lennon. And not John Lennon. <laughs> right, Vladimir. Yeah, right, right. Well, I, I want to. I, you know, there's always been gentrification. You know, my dad grew up in a bad area of Brooklyn. Uh, my mother grew up in Oklahoma. My dad's little house by Prospect Park in Brooklyn, the little brownstone, is worth three point five million dollars. Now, you know, the gentrification. Uh, and, you know, and you're asking, Greg, who are these people? Well, last uh, last night we had dinner with my son and his good, uh, his, his, his lady friend is just wonderful. And they, um, she works for a big tech company, won't name it. He's a, has his doctorate, works for a, as a researcher at state of Washington. They do very well. They spend most of their time in Zoom and in, in managing their, you know, their jobs. And they were saying, you know, we're thinking of going to North Bend or maybe and, and finding a place there. And I said, you are exactly the problem. I'm talking to somebody about you on my podcast tomorrow. And, you know, it's it's these people with great wealth. They come into these communities and they unintentionally kind of screw things up. Uh, in in raising the raising the price of property, um, there's this political divide that you mentioned that's different. Uh, you, you know, when Greg and I were in the Midwest, you wouldn't you would never go down a country road and see another car without giving them the farmer's wave, which is on the steering wheel. You just kind of go like that. You know, you acknowledge that, and you mentioned that people don't wave to each other. You know, no, that's it, a little thing, but it's a it's big so thing. Big. It was so big. I heard so much about the loss of the wave, honestly. <laughs> I have so many, you know, I mean, I know it's in the book, but it is, it's underplayed in the book with regard to just how important it was to the old timers. The, the loss of that wave was so symbolic to them um, with regard to, you know, just all of their own sense of marginalization and, and right. being treated like strangers that didn't belong in their own community. This, this was massive to them, um, but it, it speaks to more than, than just, you know, I don't know that person. It, it speaks to a, a lack of respect, right? That's what the wave was always about in rural communities. It says, you know, hey, I recognize you, I respect you. Right. <laughs> you know? right. and, and when people stopped waving at each other, there is this sense that they don't respect me anymore. They don't, they don't recognize me as part of this community. They don't have time for me. Um, they don't care about me. And 
you know, as somebody who lives in another rural community that's going through that same thing, I, I feel that way too. You know? <laughs> when, I, right. when I'm walking down my country road and some car rushes past me at 80 miles an hour in the 35 zone and doesn't wave, I feel like, oh my God, that person doesn't care that they almost ran me over. You know, it, it is a very uh, just instinctive emotional response to the loss of something that was taken for granted for generations, that everybody who lived in this place was an equal member to you know, to varying degrees, of course, like rural communities were never perfect, but, uh, you know, that was most people's sense was that you knew everybody, everybody knew you, and everybody was part of the same place. And, and what's happened now is, you know, a lot of these new residents don't understand these kinds of traditions or, or what they mean. Um, and they don't understand that, that what they're doing is hurtful. Um, they're just, you know, living the way that they've always lived, right? Um, What's different, I think, is that when you when you start to see in migration ramp up at this level, there isn't need or time for people to integrate into the local community in the same way that they once did. So when when the pace was slower, you know, some of the kind of older like people who were like quote unquote newcomers but had come more than 20 years ago, who were had been there maybe 30 or 40 years, who moved in the 60s or 70s, um, those folks would talk about, yeah, it was really different culturally. But you just had to integrate because there weren't there weren't enough of the newcomers to make their own separate community. So they might have felt uncomfortable when they first got there, but they they went to the local bars because that was the only bar there was. They went to the local restaurants because that was the only restaurant there was. And they got to know the locals and they got to learn their customs and expectations. Um, and over time, they had a much better sense of integration into that larger rural community than this later generation of newcomers did. And that was simply about kind of, you know, having a critical mass where mm -hmm. most of the newer newcomers, you know, talked about just, oh, this community is so warm and so, so great. They've been so supportive. But when they're talking about community, they're only talking about other people just like them. And, right. and they didn't have to integrate into the larger community because they had, they basically had a, enough of themselves that they just didn't need to interact with the locals that they didn't want to. And mostly they didn't want to. I I thought another thing that you dealt with so respectfully that that is this, you know, I keep I've mentioned this many times of, you know, the Hillary deplorable comment, you know, that, you know, that that somehow there's this just smugness of the East Coast elites and there is there's poverty here in Tacoma where I live, uh, you can see it, you can see the blue tents and, you know, you can kind of see it. There's horrible poverty in in these rural communities, but we don't, we don't see it and we don't seem to care about it. And there, um, there's just no attempt to really respond to it in a respectful way as these communities are transforming themselves with greater and greater economic inequities. I, I talk, talk to me a little bit about that, about how you, how you view the poverty issue in rural America and how that's not as forefront as it should be, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we don't tend to think about rural poverty as the same kind of issue for multiple reasons. Uh, I think one, it's less visible. The rural poor are rarely camped out under the bridge in the way that they would be, you know, you don't have to drive by them. Most of us don't live in rural places, so we don't have to see them. But even if you did, you often have to be, you know, kind of, looking for the rural poor to find them. Um, traditionally, they've been, you know, more likely to do things like move in with family or friends when, when they're facing housing insecurity. So you don't have as much visual, visible, excuse me, uh, homelessness usually in rural communities, um, but you do have often a lot of housing insecurity. Um, and rural communities have always kind of thought of themselves as, as we take care of our own. And, and that you know sense of like don't worry about it we've got this. <laughs> um, uh -huh. and I think you know I think also a lot of rural communities have a lot of pride and don't like to admit um, to having those kinds of divisions having social class divisions I think um, finally when you're talking about these particular you know the kinds of communities I've spent time in these mostly white rural communities there's also the issue uh, of poverty not being racialized in the ways that we perhaps are used to thinking of poverty. And I think even as a sociologist, it's been hard at times to get my work recognized because a lot of sociology is focused on urban poverty, of course, but also racialized poverty. And mm -hmm. they don't really 
want to look or think about white poverty. It's sort of like, well, you've got racial privilege. You should make this work. <laughs> right. um, so I think for all these reasons, we don't tend to, to think about rural poverty as being the same level of problem, um, but in part because we just don't see it. But as as you see in the book, and I probably saw a lot more uh, over my time there, there, there were you know a lot of homeless people that I met over the, the time I was there, the almost a year that I was there. Um, a lot of them had been kind of transitorily homeless, but that's the case with most homeless is that uh, you know, people are unhoused for a period of time and then um, stabilize it again. Um, but you know, the, the unhoused in a place like Paradise Valley are more likely to be just out of view. So they were either um, squatting sometimes, you know, sometimes indoors and sometimes outdoors. I, I met a lot of people who camped off and on, particularly mm -hmm. during the, the warmer weather. Um, and we're out of view that way, you know, and people who found short-term informal arrangements to get them off the streets for some period of time. Um, and so again, that lack of just, just visibility, right? They're not, it, it's not a visceral thing where you are hit with it every time you go outdoors. Um, and then really in a place like Paradise Valley, what's happened to some degree is as the, the old timer population has become marginalized, they've also been pushed sort of into the margins physically, geographically, where you just don't see them. And that was part of what drew me to this place in the first place was visiting as, you know, an amenity tourist myself. And I was driving, you know, through the main drives of this place and I was like, wow, this is so pretty. And this is not my experience. I've lived a lot of my life in rural communities. And usually I can see <laughs> people who are struggling. I can see their homes. I can see the junk in the yards. I can see that this is a place where somebody maybe doesn't have the the means to deal with their their trash or their waste or something like that, you know, and I just wasn't seeing it. I was like, where is it just not here? Has, you know, has tourism just revitalized this place to the point where there is no poverty? And the answer was, of course, no, um, but they had pushed poverty into the, the geographic and physical margins as much as um, all the other sort of social margins. And so people were off the land and they were living in trailer parks and, and these places were sort of hidden away. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't tend to recognize it. Um, and then, you know, there's also that sort of just lack of empathy for rural people and the sense Correct. that you should be able to make it. There's another, I mean, there's a dimension also of, of I mean, this is a poor non-poor dimension, but there's the, and I think you draw this, this distinction well, it's a class, there's a distinction. And it doesn't necessarily reflect poverty as much as it does vast disparities in income and wealth. Yeah. And that's an entirely different stuff. You, you cannot be poor. You can. I grew up in a small town where we thought the rich people were the guy that owned the gas station, or that one of the two lawyers we had in a small town in the Midwest, or we had three doctors, two or three doctors. Those were the rich people. They weren't rich. I mean, the income disparity wasn't that great, uh, and, and you could kind of live with that. And there were industrial jobs, so we all went to the same high school. The kids went to the same high school, et cetera. But now we're talking about really vast differences, shocking differences for people who live in a rural area. I mean, no one's going to Georgetown, Illinois, because you know it's a good place to live. There's no new gentry there, or Westville, Illinois. If they did, people would be shocked. They have no notion of what wealth is. You only get that in, in areas like Paradise Valley and in, in the cities. But really, that's, I think you talk about class from time to time. And I think that's a dist distinction that's as important or more important than the one between poor and non-poor. People like to think, well, we should be nice to the poor. It's a kind of good religious uh, attitude. But class divisions and growing class divisions, gro massive growth in inequality, it's shocking. And I don't think the people that are on the upside of that have any sensitivity to the image they have among people that experience it. Would you yeah, agree with that? Absolutely. That's such a good point. And really, I mean, to me, the distinction between old timers and newcomers is about social class. It's not about anything else to me. You know, I mean, it's, it's about rural urban and it's about time in this place and those things, but those are really just correlated with social class. It's really a class divide. And as you may have noted in the book, I, I really, I divide the sample based on not, it's not about poverty, right? Uh, so the, the old timers, the economic part of that distinction, um, which is based on income, includes people who are 200% of the poverty line. So what I call kind of low income. 200% um, of the poverty line is not 
actually terrible, right? We're talking, you know, over 50,000 for depending on your family size. Um, but it really represents kind of, you know, struggling or not, right? Do you feel comfortable or not? And of course, the poverty line itself is so problematic at this point in the U.S. just because it hasn't kept pace with inflation uh, or living expenses at all. So to live below the poverty line means you're you're experiencing really, really dire struggle. Um, and to be, you know, 120% of the poverty line means you're probably also still <laughs> experiencing a lot of struggle. Um, yeah. So the poverty line is a little bit arbitrary. But I think you're absolutely right, Greg, that the bigger issue, at least in Paradise Valley, income mattered. Income was a big piece of it, but wealth was a much bigger piece of that. You know, And then there were the other, the other kinds of class-based resources that are not monetary things that I talk about, like social capital and education and cultural stuff, you know, cultural norms and, and interests, which we've already discussed. But um, wealth was a big, big part of the puzzle. Um, whether, you know, I mean, wealth was the difference between things like seasonal jobs, right? A lot of the jobs there are seasonal. Being a carpenter, that's seasonal. You don't do that in the wintertime. But did you experience seasonal unemployment as a real hardship or was it a vacation? <laughs> the, you know, the answer to, the, I mean, really, that's like the right. answer to that will depend entirely on your personal wealth, right? Can you, you know, make it through that period of time without income, fall back on your wealth and go skiing for three months? you have a good life, right? Are you during those three months struggling to make ends meet, not sure how you're gonna pay the rent or the mortgage and, and really scrambling to find anything to bring in the income that you need because you don't have that safety net to fall back on. That's a huge difference. And that was one of those pieces, you know, when I got into the sort of the class blindness piece, that's one of the pieces that the, the upper class people just did not understand. You know, I, like if I can make it, why can't they, right? Yeah. What are they doing wrong that they're, they seem to be struggling, but I have that same job and I'm doing fine, right? Wealth was often that the piece they were blind to, the role of wealth and that kind of, you know, just having those kinds of safety nets, whether it's your own wealth or your family's that you know you can count on or that kind yeah. of thing. Or in some cases it was about having, you know, grandparents who were gonna pay for your kids' college education so you didn't have to, you know, stress out about that. It, wealth took a lot of different forms, but. Um, it was a huge, and, and it remains a huge piece of the puzzle. It's, you know, a, a big part of social class distinctions in the U.S. It's a huge part of racial distinctions in the U.S. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of why we see such class distinctions based on race is just the, you know, legacies of various kinds of racist practices that meant that certain groups of people had a much harder time amassing wealth. Wealth is Wealth can be passed down, right? So yeah. over generations, wealth gets bigger yeah. <laughs> and the lack of it remains. Yeah. You know, I was in, in getting ready for your podcast, I was looking at a couple of lectures and things, and I came across uh, President Johnson's uh, Commission on Rural Property back in the 60s. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And at, at that time, he's indicated that the rural poverty was literally twice the rate of urban poverty back back then mm -hmm. and then robert reich you know with his uh, he has a lot of lectures on geographic inequity and how the tech sector is pushing all of the jobs and wealth to just a small group of cities mm -hmm. um and uh you know angus denton from princeton talks about inequity we, we have the greatest inequity of any uh western company country and that's where i think your work is so valuable it's you're saying i can't solve everything but i want to show you this one problem area that we should have on our radar and you it, it it's a real service to, to see you you do that i think so T tell me your next tell me your next work on um criminal justice in rural areas what what's that all about yeah um so this is a really exciting project that i've been um i guess i've been working on since early 2020 um and will continue uh, we've just got an extension from uh, a big grant from the nij to continue with this work um, but basically we were asked to try to uh, unpack why is it that rural jail uh, incarceration rates are increasing while jail incarceration elsewhere has been decreasing? So urban and suburban rates have been decreasing for about a decade and rural rates are still rising. Um, and 
we were first brought on board by the Vera Foundation of Justice to, to just kind of look into that, like what are the drivers of rural jail incarceration? And so, you know, I make that distinction or I'm trying to make it jail, not prison, um, because jail is a catch-off for all sorts of things. Um, and not everybody who enters jail goes on to prison, just a small proportion of those folks ever do. Um, but we were, you know, brought on to look into kind of what are the drivers and what are some of the outcomes of that? Um, and so I, I'm working with a larger team, which does include a quantitative sociologist, uh, my, my good friend and colleague, Jennifer Schwartz here at WSU. Um, so we were able to actually, we get the data from six rural jails in Washington state um, and, you know, booking data she's been analyzing. And then I've been interviewing people who've been in and out of these jails in our six counties and beyond. Um, and just trying to, to learn about some of uh, the issues that we're facing, including a, a lot of what I've been looking into is sort of this you know, criminalization of poverty, how it plays out on the ground and how do the structures of rural communities contribute to that? So, um, you know, I think often when we think about the criminalization of poverty, we think of it just in terms of like fines and fees that are levied when you get arrested or something like that. But what we're discovering in, in rural areas is that um, there's lots of other structures that, that mean that poverty, you know, people who are struggling financially are, are brought into the system and, and then kind of churned through it over and over again and are unable to get out due to things that are, you know, some of them are financial and some of them are not, but uh, you can think of it in terms of things like um, transportation, right? So, you know, often when you've had an arrest, you end up losing your license. Um, that costs money, of course, to reinstate. Um, but also you need it usually in a rural community to get to right. your work or to get to court. Um, <laughs> and if you fail at either of those things, um, you're likely to end up back in the system. Um, and everybody knows you, you on the, everybody knows you on the road. It's not like you're going to be invisible in a large urban area, you know? Exactly. You know? Right. And so both our sheriffs and the folks who've been in the jails will tell us that, that like they know people's cars, they know that guy's not supposed to be driving and they know, you know, they see him pull out, they're going to pick him up. Right. So the surveillance level matters, the level of integration into your rural community matters, right? Does your community see you as sort of like a, a stand-up citizen that they want to support or, you know, somebody who they don't think is, is worthy of that kind of support. And that's going to, it's going to play out in the, in these small justice systems, but yeah, it, all these other issues are going to play out, right? What kind of access do you have to healthcare and mental health care and, and drug and alcohol treatment? Is it there or is it not there? Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of these issues, sometimes it's issues around the digital divide or the housing insecurity. Like, did you, you know, rural communities to not have really sophisticated notification systems when you're doing court, you know? Um, so often they're still sell, sending, you know, paper letters. And if you didn't get your mail because you lost your housing, because you lost your job, because you lost your license, right? you're not gonna show up in court and then you're gonna end up back in jail. And so what we found is when we first started looking into this, the sheriffs would tell us, oh, it's a revolving door. We see the same people over and over and over again. They just keep committing new crimes. Um, and when we looked into the data, what we found is actually they're not committing new crimes. They just can't get out of the system. Once it's kind in. of a Ferguson issue. When the Ferguson thing happened, the the real story was the 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 tremendous amount of fees and fines that were going to a small group of people. In the same time, they're giving tax breaks to billionaire corporations yeah. to move in. So yeah, yeah, yeah except yeah. that it's the net in a rural community can go beyond just the fines and fees. It can go into all of these other aspects of your life that are still controlled by access to financial capital, but um, may, you know, may go well beyond just that question of can you pay the fee um, or, you know, might contribute to your inability to pay the fee. So it's, it's you know, the, the sort of the criminalization of poverty is about more than just fines and fees. And, right. and that's a lot of what we're looking at is uh, ways in which different rural structures play out. Oh, that's in my, day, in my day, Pat, it, got, it was hard to be arrested in, in a small town. It was difficult. I mean, we got stopped a few times for underage drinking, um, other pranks we pulled, we would have these practices around Halloween when we bombard cars with water balloons. I mean, they were criminal acts, but everybody knew everybody. So if the police stopped you, you got your hand slapped or you got a phone call to your family, you really had to work hard to get arrested, to get in deep trouble there because everybody knew everybody. This sense of community that, uh, that we were talking about, Jennifer brought up uh, with the wave, uh, it existed. And I think, though, 
if you go back to where I grew up, to Georgetown, Westville, that area you're familiar with, Pat, that's, that's deteriorated. That's really uh, dissolved. So you don't have that same kind of feeling. You don't, you don't have that same kind of um, uh, looseness around the criminal justice system. They're going to hammer you when you, uh, you get picked up. I think that's an element of it, too. I think I would, I would say that there's probably, it still exists. It just exists for a smaller proportion of the rural population than it used to. So it doesn't necessarily cover everybody. But certainly I've uncovered that same kind of dynamic in this work where there are people that are seen as sort of community pillars and are really well respected. And they are often treated very differently in the criminal justice system than people who are either from families that are not well trusted or that are not well integrated or maybe haven't lived there as long or that, you know, it, it does depend a little bit on your, your local integration and your local reputation and things like that. It's just, it's not universal. It, it's not just like, oh, you live here, you're from an old family, we're not gonna do anything to you. It really, it's gonna depend on some of these others understandings of your moral stance or your, you know, your place in the community, um, but that's a, it's a piece of the story, and so it isn't an entirely equal system for everybody within it. Um, I suppose nothing is anymore. Right. <laughs> nothing is. Hey, I'd like to, you to talk a little bit about your research techniques. You know, you, your books remind me of. I wrote a book, uh, "Stranger in Their Own Land." You know that book of the sociologist from Berkeley who yeah. goes to New Orleans and sort of embeds herself in this community to uh, um, find insight of what's going on. And, and you know, the, I think that people don't realize there's different research methods. And one is a qualitative method where you, you do structured interviews and then you use statistical methods to try to extract what are the themes, what are the features that uh, help guide you mining the um, information from, from those events. T tell us a little bit how you do that and, and you know why that's so important in sociology. Yeah, yeah. So sociology has a few different kind of schools of methodology. Um, and, and there is this sort of, you know, distinction, at least I won't say a divide between quantitative and qualitative. And so quantitative is the thing we usually think of as like statistical analysis, where you take really large scale data, things like census data or other, other, you know, survey data that's collected on the large scale, and analyze that for patterns and statistical correlations and stuff like that. And that um, you know, often can give you kind of the big picture and really, you know, help you understand what is, is happening. What it often can't tell you is sort of the how things are happening or, you know, the mechanisms by which they occur. They're often sort of hard to um, really tease out with quantitative data just because it's a little bit of a blunt instrument for understanding, you know, human behavior. And so qualitative is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum where it's often a much smaller number of observations, but really instead of you know, just seeing data that was collected often without any personal interaction, uh, qualitative methods really mean you know, learning about the social world by interacting directly with people, with the social world. Um, and so some of the, the main methods are you know, these uh, in-depth interviews. So the interviews that I do, and that's a, Kind of the bulk of my research generally is these uh, sort of semi-structured, they're not really structured interview, you know, where I have sort of topics I want to talk about, but the questions are very open-ended. Um, so versus like a survey where you'd be asked a yes, no question, or, you know, be given five choices. My questions are much more likely to be like, tell me about, you know, this, or how did that happen? Or, you know, um, but it really unfolds much more like a conversation um, and it's recorded and then transcribed. And so I'm, I end up, you know, where my data is just these, I mean, 100 page transcripts of these conversations. Um, and then what you do with that is, uh, it's not really statistical analysis, but we do use uh, analysis software where you go through and you start to identify themes where you're like, oh, that, you know, that seems like I've heard that before, right? What is that? What is that about? What does that mean? And so you usually go through different stages of this coding process where you assign meaningful codes to these things so that you can recognize them again later. Um, and sometimes the codes are really, you know, they're just 
helping you mark instances of a thing, but often they're helping you interpret the meaning of, you know, so you're going to have different quotes, but what do they all speak to? It's something similar. And then you can later start to see, oh, there's patterns here. Um, so that's a lot of what I do. Uh, but then the other piece for my big works, particularly my books, has been what's called ethnographic methods or participant observation. And that basically means learning about the social world by really being a participant in it. Um, and that is, that's different, um, where there is no structure, you're not, you know, you're not following any kind of questionnaire or script at all, you're basically just taking part in daily life in different ways. Um, and then after, you know, often long periods of, you know, hours at a time of, of doing something with people in the community, I'll go home and just write these long notes, what's called field notes, where I try to remember everything that occurred as well as kind of, you know, pieces of analysis. There's often kind of pieces of my own experience in the field notes. Um, I try to keep track of my own biases as I'm going to kind of help me um, make sense of what I saw. And, you know, I, I, you know, you try to remember that I'm not, I'm not a camera, right? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not uh, a perfect reproduction, but I, I'm filtering through my own position, my own understanding, et cetera. So you just try to keep track of what was I going through while I was doing that. Um, but so for a book like Dividing Paradise, that meant many things. It meant um, doing volunteer work at the same places over and over again. So I could watch from week to week what was unfolding and really getting to understand um, how things like services were provided. It also, um, you know, let me just kind of watch people and the way they interact with each other. Um, but a lot of my participant observation was, was less structured even than that. It was just kind of living in the community, paying attention when I go to the grocery store, or when I am out at an event, or when I go to yoga class. It meant sometimes paying attention and taking notes on you know, what should have just been normal social interactions where people thought of themselves as my friends. Um, and, uh, you know, they knew who I was. I, I never um, tried to hide that from anybody, but people would sort of forget and they would just include you in things. And um, it was also my job to always have that sort of sociological lens on while I was doing stuff with people and, and learning from them about their assumptions and their world and, and the way they see things. So often the insights I had came from really casual interactions. Um, sometimes it came from watching, you know, a chamber of commerce meeting unfold or, you know, much more structured things, right. but tried to do <laughs> all of these things at once. And I tried to um, interact with really different groups across the, the social class spectrum while I was there and, and really get to know as many different groups of people as possible and observe as much as I can. It's also a, a really, you know, kind of emotionally taxing methodology to use because you have, in my case, usually a year of your life where you never get to, you're never off the clock. Like every aspect of your life is data. <laughs> and it can be really exhausting, um, you know, especially after a long day of interacting with people. And, you know, I'm quite an introvert myself. So uh, it really pushes me to put myself into uncomfortable situations <laughs> and, and, you know, force myself to go to things where I'm not really wanted or I don't really belong. Um, and, you know, after at the end of that, you come home exhausted and now you got to write two hours of notes. <laughs> yeah. So well, this immersion was for a whole year. I mean, you immersed just, right. you had no real escape. It was like uh, taking on a theatrical role and never leaving it for an entire year. It must it have really been really is. taxing and, and, and just personally difficult. It is. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's amazing as well. I love it. And, and I think there's something really, I mean, I get to be my best self for that year, honestly, because you can't be your worst <laughs> self, you know, <laughs> you can't, you can't just let yourself be. So there, I mean, it's both exhausting because you do have to kind of watch what you say and what you do and do your best sure. not to offend and, you know, um, and I'm a pretty unfiltered person in my real life. So <laughs> it's like having really a external <laughs> filter <laughs> for a year. So yeah, it can be really hard. Um, and you know, the way you survive it is often to just kind of get away for little periods of time and and you know, maintain relationships outside of the field site so that you do have those breaks where you get to just be yourself. But it's a strange experience because at the end of that, you often feel like you've gotten to know people really well, but that they didn't really get to know me. And nearly as well, because there's a lot of, of, of myself that doesn't get to be expressed in those experiences that you do have to hold back. And, and you know, in some in some cases, it's just they, they just can't understand who you are, you know, so I'm often interacting with people that 
they've never met a college professor before. They don't really understand who I am or what I do. Um, and, and yet we have a relationship, over, you know, that's built over the course of a year, but it often is sort of an unequal relationship because there's a lot about me that they don't really understand. Whereas I'm in their homes and I'm in their lives and I'm, you know, seeing them a little bit more fully. Well, you'll get a, you, you might appreciate this story. I, you, I noticed that in your book, you use uh, Navivo software for your coding, you know, which um, I'm in my career, I was a research director at a large, several school districts, and I used to use Navivo. And I was, um, I was at a conference once, and I think it was a Seattle, uh, they were looking at all of the schools that made remarkable growth that were very high poverty, uh, had all of the headwinds against them. And yet there were a couple of schools that really showed this, this very good academic growth. So they went in and used Navivo and did this qualitative uh, analysis and they interviewed everybody. And, and the researcher looked at all of the data and discovered that one of the biggest factors was that the teachers in these high-performing, uh, high-poverty schools used the pronouns we and us oh, wow. at like an exponentially more <laughs> level than the other schools. It was I and them. And and they, it was only through the analysis of the, the software that they, they picked up that theme that, wait a second, they don't feel isolated. They feel like that they are a, a team together as opposed to this person who is struggling against, you know, yeah. anyway. So I, you, that's, that's a little Navivo uh, tidbit that you'd probably but appreciate. I think that's a great example of kind of what qualitative methods bring to sociology that quantitative methods can't, right? Because looking at the, the large picture statistical data, you can see there's a pattern here, but often you can't see the mechanism, right? And, and getting into the qualitative and just, you know, understanding how people present themselves or think about themselves in their own words or in their daily lives, often you do see exactly those kinds of patterns emerge that you just couldn't, you just can't get at often with, right. with big data. So it just, it brings something different, but it often, you know, I, I think I, I began doing qualitative methods uh, partially because I was really interested in um, a question where, you know, it was with my first book, it was, the question was really asking about links between poverty and family structure, which looked the same in rural and urban places. So, you know, in both places, single parenting and poverty were correlated. And after looking at the, the mostly urban-based literature around this, I was like, no, that, that doesn't fit the rural scenario. I've lived in rural places most of my life, and, and that's not how it is, right? What they're describing as kind of the how was just wrong for rural communities. And so I did this in part because I wanted to get at that. And, and absolutely the, the mechanisms were different, but the patterns were the same. You know, they were just unfolding very differently. And in order to, to really see that, you have to get down to that, that micro level and, and really talk to groups of people. Um, I think with regard to something like dividing paradise, that sometimes I think the 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 pitfall with doing this kind of micro level analysis is that people often imagine that these are individual problems that are perpetuated by individuals and thus they have individual solutions. Um, and while, you know, certainly there are things individuals can do to, you know, to sort of improve this situation a little bit, right? Individuals can check their own class assumptions. They can, be less class blind and, and recognize that the failure to see class privilege is a real problem. Um, those are things individuals can do. They can you know, make an effort to get to know people that are not so much like them and, and really resist those tendencies towards you know, only associating with the people that are most like yourself. But um, at the same time, that's not gonna solve the, the larger problem of American inequality, right? Which is of course perpetuated not simply by individuals making individual choices, but by the structure of our economy, of our policies, of, our, of the choices we've made. And again, your sort of individual assumptions will often color the way you do or don't interpret policies and what you do or don't support, but you can't fix it <laughs> just right. at the individual level. You have to go to that macro level um, in order to make a, a big change. Um, and, and I think that's, that can get lost. I'd like to press you on that a little bit because 
when I read your last chapter, um, there's a big appeal to understanding, which I which I understand. If you want to, people need to understand. It. It's as you say, it's not an individual thing. It can't be ameliorated by just having a better attitude. It requires addressing the core issue of inequality. But you don't go into that too much in that last chapter. Maybe that's because it's a scientific, you know, it's your, it's your what you've learned. It's not your opinions. But I like to press you on your opinions a little bit more now. Uh, yeah. What do you think are some of the solutions? Uh, I take it that when you left Paradise Valley, you didn't feel like the process of uh, inequality had slowed down or was going to recede or that it's actually increasing and continuing. So. What are the solutions you could possibly see uh, overall to that kind of a problem? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. Like I, I don't I don't make those macro level suggestions so much because my data doesn't really speak to them that well. Um, but I think as a sociologist, I see it as, yeah, we we need to address the underlying causes of inequality in some major way. And I I often think of it as there's sort of like two ways that we could address this. One would be, you know, through the labor market, because we don't, you know, I mean, basically, because the other would be through sort of socialist policies, <laughs> like providing universal health care and childcare and housing support and income support, and things that, you know, Americans tend to really disdain and think of as antithetical to capitalism. Um, but that certainly is one way to level the playing field, right? Because some of the My things- preferred way, but what's the other way? They yeah. call it, yeah, they call it the Bernie solution. Yeah. Right, which I mean, are just normal would... things that Europe does all the time that we yeah. somehow think is a you know is a a linen um, a linen thing. Yeah, exactly. So right, that's the, you know one way to do it is sort of tax from the top to bring up the bottom, right, and right. bring everybody closer to the middle, and you know raise up people that are spending more than half of their wages on housing, right? Oh, Make gosh. that affordable, and then you give them back that money, etc. So that's one solution, obviously, um, and because Americans are <laughs> tend to um, really resist anything that, you know, kind of reeks of socialism in any way. Um, I think another is to think about work and what work is worth. And I think particularly post pandemic, I'm, I'm really surprised honestly that we haven't had more discussion of this or more awakening around this question that, you know, early in the pandemic, we literally branded a whole class of our lowest paid workers as essential. And, and told them, you don't get to stay home. You don't get to take time off. This, this country can't exist without your labor. And yet those are people that are not paid living wages, tend to not have any job benefits. Many of them have no flexibility, no control over their working hours or their working conditions, right? These, you know, these are things maybe we should think about. If we, if we believe so much that work is the answer and that everybody should work, because we don't want to give people handouts because that will you know, destroy them as a human or something, um, then we should think about how do we make sure that people who work and who you know, are that kind of hardworking essential worker that we, we like to idolize, we, we want to make sure that, that they also have a chance at the American dream. And I think that's a lot of what this book is about for me is, is having us recognize that we've taken that dream away. That was the dream on you know, which this country was sort of built was if you work hard, you will succeed. And we're now in a situation where depending on basically what kind of place, what kind of family, what kind of background you were born into, you have very differential opportunity to, to succeed through work. And a lot of this story is about you know, people doing almost the same work and having really different outcomes <laughs> because of these pre-existing resources and their access to them or lack of access to them. So, you know, I think that's another way we could think about it is how do we make sure that all work provides a basic level of access to the American dream, um, you know, and maybe back up our vision of that a few years, because as I described in the book, I feel like our understanding of the dream is kind of diminishing you know, <laughs> over time as it becomes further and further away for a lot of people. Um, but I guess that would be my, my other suggestion. We're all for that. Unionizing Amazon warehouses and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a little uh, sense of hope yesterday, a podcast, New York times, um, uh, podcast i think i forget what one of them had the whole segment on uh nursing 
and that these traveling, these essential workers, that COVID has just burned out these nurses. And so they would were forced to hire traveling nurses that made three times what the regular nurses made. So the regular nurses are saying, I, I'm a traveling <laughs> nurse now. And it's showing you the importance of this segment of our population, which has been, unfortunately, the, the medical, the, the whole medical industry is a mess with for profit brought into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just was, there's some hope there that, you know, it's exactly what you're talking about. There's a value of work. There's a value of what you do. And the pandemic, I think, exposed that in, in a positive way. So, so. I hope so. <laughs> Jennifer, you are just so wonderful. I, uh, I'd love to audit one of your classes or, you, you know, do online classes, do you? Um, we do them weird here at WSU. So I do teach online classes, but I, I don't actually get to create the content. Oh, I... that's, 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 that's <laughs> This time last year, I did an online You're class. You're not trusted. You're not trusted. <laughs> I did an online class with Noam Chomsky in Arizona, which is, you know, and you would be perfect for that because this is such good, good content of what you're working with. So I, I highly recommend people pick up the Biting Paradise, especially all of my, you know, my tech friends and young people that are screwing things up as they're, you know, you know, getting get in their little houses in Maple Valley. So um, anyway, so thank you for for uh, coming on. And I really want to uh, follow your work on your, your criminal justice thing. That is that's remarkable. I have a, um, a nephew that's a um, police officer, not a police officer, but he works in a jail and out in you know Paradise Valley area, and um, yeah. uh, and it is a, it's it's a rough rough uh, situation. So we'll have you back on when you're done with that book, okay? Awesome. Um, and I just want to thank you both so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you for reading the book so carefully. Um, it was really great to talk to you both. Good. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks thank very you. much. Mm -hmm.